louder! Recording live from the Black Lodge, it's Rants After Dark, with your host, Brandon A. Lane. Welcome again to another episode of Rants After Dark. I'm your host, Brandon A. Lane, and joining me tonight is the technical advisor, longtime technical advisor to the Rants for the Black Lodge podcast, making his debut. That being my good friend, Jason Davis. All right. Great to be in the Black Lodge, Brandon. I've I've looked forward to coming on for a long time, and actually, I'll admit, I've got a little bit of nerves here because you've grown quite a following in the, the years that you've been doing this, and uh, I really look forward to it. Well, a good deal of that has, has been uh, by your doing in helping me in the technical aspects, because Lord knows I am not astute in the ways of technical in any way, shape, or form, and we're trying out some new equipment today. So hopefully that'll go well. But either way, we're going to be doing something a little different tonight. We're going to be watching a kooky little movie that you may have seen called Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It's a classic. Absolute classic. Uh, we'll get into the details and the minutiae as we continue on. Now, we invite all of you out there in the rant already to pop in your DVD, Blu-ray, VHS, Laserdisc, or your digital copy. And you're going to pause the movie right on the Warner Brothers logo. And we'll do a little countdown. We'll do three, two, one, and when I say hit play, you're going to hit play. It's that simple. Now, just remember, you don't have to watch the movie with us. You get to watch the movie with us. So, Jason, give us the countdown. All right. Five, four, three. Well, we, well, we usually do three. Come on. Oh, sorry. <laughs> three, two, one, action. And we start off with the the wonderful Danny Elfman music. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about Danny Elfman's inclusion to this? <laughs> yeah, Danny Elfman, famously of... Uh, late 70s, 80s band Oingo Boingo. <laughs> and um, it's it's really interesting, something that I noticed when I did a little bit of research for this. He actually didn't, apparently didn't know how to compose or, or notate music and had to get his guitarist to help him with this project, which that seems like a prerequisite for a fairly big budget movie. Well, I mean, coming from the world of... Uh, pop rock. I don't know really what what you would consider Oingo Boingo, but coming from that world, I mean, it's not it's not classical music in the sense of like you know you're sitting down to write on sheet music. So I I, I can kind of understand that this um, collaboration has continued on uh, probably most prolifically with Batman. The, the, mm-hmm. the Batman score is as identifiable as anything coming from the 1980s, and uh, uh, Danny Elfman's still going. He just did uh, the the most recent Spider Man movie. Uh, and I think did he do? Uh, uh, I, I'm not uh, sure. I know he did Spider Man, but I'm trying to think. Did he do uh, the newest uh, Doctor Strange film? I'm I'm not entirely entirely certain. Uh, this this sequence. Ugh. As a kid, I was so <laughs> confused by this. <laughs> I, I don't think I really understood the Tour de France. And oh, I, I don't think most Americans <laughs> to this day still uh, understand the Tour de France. So, Pee-wee's Big Adventure was released August 9th, 1985, on an estimated budget of $6 million. Now, in movie terms back then, that's not really a lot, and it's not a lot now, but it's this would probably be like a a mid-low-budget film. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
considering the budget, I mean, there's a lot of really, really interesting locations and uh, effects in this movie. The, the Rube Goldberg stuff we're going to see a little later on. There's a lot of creativity put into the film. And I'm, I'm the purveyor of the thought that when you make a film, it's not so much about how much money you have. It's how you use the money that you have. They haven't even mowed the grass. Here. That was well. That that was beyond the budget. <laughs> but um, yeah, you spoke there for a moment about the the uh, the production and the cost and everything. This is actually the production company that that produced the Jerk, the Man with Two Brains. So they they had a little bit of capital there in terms of creative capital. Well, I mean, Pee Wee Herman was sort of like the toast of the town. Uh, so it was inevitable that they were going to give him a. Uh, a vehicle in cinema form. Uh, there's a big giant uh, Godzilla head in the corner there. The, all of this production design is stuff that like I would have taken completely for granted uh, if not I had become friends with Mick Strawn because I didn't have a clue even what a production designer did. And I actually meant to look up who did the production design on this movie, but it's so it's so specific. It's colorful. It's bright. It's it's like. I know as a kid watching this, it was like the greatest kids room that you could possibly want. Like this was the room I wish I had when I was a kid. So much of this stuff actually came from Paul Rubin's collection. That's that's true to, to save on uh, on cost. Um, so I guess in some ways he kind of was in a at least in an ancillary way, uh, a production designer. Mm -hmm. Um so when did you see this movie for the first time? So the movie was released in what, 85? 85. Is that right? So I was seven in 85. I think I saw this rented from Family Video, a uh, video store in La Follette, Tennessee, probably around 1986, 87. It was still, Pee Wee was still a big deal. It was, uh, I believe, uh, the show was was still on at that point. Pee Wee's Playhouse. Yeah, and and I remember going into it very. Uh, I I knew nothing about Pee Wee Herman. Um, I thought it was weird, and it really took me a couple of times of watching it to love it as a kid. And and I wore it out, wore this VHS out once I bought well, it. Well, you made the the comment to me a little earlier that. This probably isn't in your top 10 favorite films, but it's in the top 10 in terms of the films you've seen the most. Absolutely. I, I lived in a town. We we were lucky to get three channels on an antenna. So whatever you had on VHS, if you were lucky enough to have a VCR back in the mid 80s or mid early 80s, um, you wore your tapes out. And it was absolutely one that that I wore out. This is a film that that I saw on Cinemax. Uh, because my aunt had, you know, a, a, a satellite dish back when that was, you know, the the biggest and fanciest mm -hmm. thing in terms of, you know, viewing habits. And uh, we had it on a, a cassette tape, SLP. Uh -huh. So it was like that and five other movies. And I watched it to the point where it was unwatchable. Mm -hmm. And I went years without having seen this movie. And the copy we're watching right now my my mom got me, uh, oddly enough, uh, I'll tell the story as to why this is a big surprise, but she got it for me on DVD for Christmas, and we watched it, and she had sort of divorced herself from the, the Pee Wee fandom, and uh, had 
you know, kind of made ideas in her head about what the Pee Wee character was. And, you know, though this isn't for me and my stepdad had never seen it because this is just not the type of film that he would care for. But they both end up loving it, which was which was wonderful mm-hmm. because, you know, I had fond memories for Paul Rubens and the character. Uh, opening weekend, this movie made four million five hundred and forty five thousand wow. eight hundred and forty seven dollars. Uh, so it nearly made back its budget in that opening weekend. And it's overall gross. Forty one million. Wow. Forty seven thousand three hundred and forty four dollars. That is an immense success for a a, a movie essentially uh, aimed at children. <laughs> I guess there may be children. Well, there, there, that, uh, yeah. there was probably a somewhat of a, 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 a crossover appeal with, you know, teenagers and adults. But uh, predominantly, I think Mr. T fans. Yes, Mr. T fans, which that actually is real cereal. I it remember, was it was actually decent it, uh, for the TV themed cereals. It, it's basically just uh, Captain Crunch without the Crunch Berries. Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess it would be just regular Captain Crunch. Better than G.I. Joe cereal, which was an abomination, but I bought it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> we get fooled by so much uh, yeah. marketing back then. But that's kind of what made the, the era so great. What do you think the IMDb rating is for Pee-wee's Big Adventure? That would be, that'd be out I of did 10. Not, I did not look, and I'm going to guess. Let's go. I'm going to shoot a little high. 7.5. You're close. 7.0. 7.0. All right. Rotten Tomatoes. What do you think that score is? Rotten Tomatoes. Um, I'm going to say 80%. 87%, oh, which is nice, fresh. Nice. And the audience score is 79%. I, w- I could see that critics would give Paul Rubens a little bit of a room, maybe. We're, whereas we're, a general audience that doesn't know what they're looking at might. We're going we're gonna to talk about the critics here in just a few moments. Uh, Metacritic, which I have stated time and time again, is the absolute worst aggregator in terms of like how people in the general populace perceive a movie and remember a movie and rate a movie, but they have it at 47%. Wow. Uh, Google users, which I tend to believe being one of the more accurate, they have it at 77%, which is pretty close to, you know, you know, the IMDb It's in that general area. Mm -hmm. But the only score that matters is the rant army review. So in the Facebook group, I gave you two options. Pee-wee's big adventure. Good. Pee-wee's Big Adventure, bad. What do you think the Rant Army rated Pee-wee's Big Adventure? Well, the Rant Army has shown that they have pretty good taste. So I'm going to guess, um, I'm not sure how you scored it, but I'm going to guess it's a, a 9 or a 90, somewhere I, in that range. I, I, I They scored 100%. Not, oh, not, not, go, not a single person said anything neg- natively about this film. We like as it. we have the the hero shot of Pee-wee's bicycle. The beautiful, beautiful bicycle. This is truly uh, a wonderful thing. Like I was not an outdoor child, mm-hmm. but I wanted this bicycle so bad. This was like the the height of you know quality in terms of it has a tiger on the front of it. Come on. Sadly, the custom shop that built that. I do not think they're in business any longer. Uh, that custom shop that they they were given two options, like ten grand up front to build them, like ten or eleven, twelve mm-hmm. uh, bicycles, or get screen credit uh, only. And so they they took the money up front, and yeah, they they probably made the worst decision 
in the long run because having that credit, you know, that would have given other industry insiders the sort of the idea like, well, we can call for them when we're going to make what was the bicycle movie? Rad. Uh, or uh, well, I was talking about the uh, the the more prestigious one, uh, <laughs> but but yeah, uh, the BMX kid. I don't. Know. <laughs> I don't know there was uh, it's like Blades of Glory, but that's like that's that's the Will Ferrell movie, but it's something like that. Is it Wheels of Glory? Oh, I don't know. Chariots of Fire is that it? No, Chariots of Fire is a. a a running a movie about running. Well, fuck it, I don't know. Well, here we have the uh, the the debut of one of the greatest screen characters in my history of watching films. And I, I think that would be applicable for just about anybody who grew up in this time. That being Mark Holton as Francis. He he was really having a moment at that point. He'd been chubby in Teen Wolf. He's Francis in this. He's actually a very likable uh, character actor. Uh, he was Ozzy in Leprechaun, uh, one of the early episodes of this podcast. You can check that out in the archive. He also played John Wayne Gacy in 2003's uh, that's, Gacy. That's fucking creepy. Look at him. I mean... <laughs> he's perfect he, for that role. He kind of fits the bill. So here we have, in terms of 80s like catchphrases, perhaps one of the biggest oh, of yeah. all time. I know you are, but what am I? I got in trouble in probably like first or second grade for telling my teacher this. And I was a pretty good kid about not, you know, ruffling feathers back then. I was kind of shy. Mm -hmm. But uh, a kid, a kid, a kid threw a plastic block at me that was shaped like a brick and like big, the size of a brick. And it was like you build them and make a wall and then knock them down and stuff. And I was playing Hulk. So I wanted to knock that wall down. And, um, the kid threw the brick at me and, um, and I said something smart ass to him. You'll be sorry, Pee Wee Herman. Um, but I, I'm, I kind of got up in the kid's face and, uh, my teacher, uh, pulled me, pulled us apart. And she's like, who do you think you are? And my instant response was, I know you are, but what am I? It didn't even matter that it made sense. It just, it was the, the comeback that I came up with. And, um, yeah, my, my mom was not too happy that I had to, uh, be reprimanded, but I was a pretty good kid for the most part. Uh, where do you think, <coughs> excuse me, where do you think Francis ranks in terms of like 1980s bullies? He's definitely not William Zabka level. No, no. And, and he's a mastermind. He doesn't actually resort to any, anything physical on his own or he doesn't steal on his own, but, uh, he's got all the money in the world. He could have any bike in the world, he even said it, but he's got to have peewees. He's just a, he's just an asshole. And I think that's why he's, he's one of the great, uh, un, unthought of eighties villains. You don't, he doesn't immediately spring to mind, but he's, he's pretty good. My, my six year old daughter fucking hates him. <laughs> he, he's, he is a mean man. He's the, you you hit you hit uh, hit the nail on the head. He's he's the mastermind of of the the downfall, you know, and the incoming journey that Pee Wee has to go on. God, roving packs of bicycle kids. We need more of that in the the twenty twenties. Yeah, we well we need we need less less kids in general. Uh, <laughs> in my in my opinion, but uh, if we're going to have them in packs of bikes, uh, that would be yeah, that'd be kind of cool. Better than. Whatever they're doing, um, the, I love I love this right here. The the insane lengths that he goes to <laughs> chain his bicycle up. Oh, quick technical fact: 
my copy of this, which we actually recorded off of a satellite dish, 80s style, was in, you know, four by three. Um, and you could clearly see the chain coming from underneath the compartment right there. It was it was being fed, fed through, through the it, bottom. Yeah. And if you get an old copy that's four by three, even probably even the studio VHS, you see that. It wasn't until the digital release that they cleaned it up. Well, if you if you look at like how he has this chained on here, um, all the chain is on the bike, and there's like one loop around around the uh, the clown. But evidently, that that whole gag kind of makes sense for what you're saying about the chain being fed through there, mm-hmm. because him tying it to a clown is that's a, a remark about the clown uh, car uh, clowns coming out of a clown car in the oh, circus. Oh yeah, that makes sense. I I love the this whole sequence right here of the joke shop and uh, as a the kid Elvira sign that there is an Elvira sign who um spoiler alert um Cassandra Peterson will be showing up a little later in the film not playing her signature character but I I love this because as a kid like I just thought like whoa there's a town that has something like this <laughs> right and, and yeah. I mean there probably was but not in Tennessee no we had nothing like this uh, th- I, I still kind of long for a place like this. I love that, like even that Pee Wee is played very innocently. There, there are yeah. still moments of the adult content kind of weaved in, and we'll get into that as we talk a little more about the the Pee Wee character and its origins. Um, Jason, if you'd be so kind, would you read the synopsis for Pee Wee's Big Adventure? Call in the FBI. Alert the president. Advise all ships at sea and break out the bar phone. Pee-wee Herman's bicycle, the neatest bike in the world, is missing. It's his most prized possession, and he's just got to get it back. Searching high, low, and in between, Pee-wee hits the open road and encounters riotous adventures with bikers, cowboys, crooks, and a phantom trucker. Finally, Pee-wee's quest leads him to Warner Brothers Studios, where security is tight. The sound stages are busy, and his spiffy, super-duper deluxe red bicycle is in the hands of a spoiled brat child star. But not for long. Get ready for great fun, crazy excitement, and big laughs in Tim Burton's directorial debut, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Well said, my friend. Now, the Red Army resoundingly loved this movie and over time has been recognized as somewhat of an all-time classic, but critics were incredibly harsh on Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and particularly Gene Siskel, who had this <laughs> to say, For me, Pee-wee's juvenile, uh, juvenile humor, I guess, works better in seven-minute skits on a show. That's the only conclusion I can draw from my negative response to this movie. Just didn't make it for me. Um, I hate Siskel and Ebert with a passion. And I want to preface this is that I don't hate them because... They have differing opinions than I do. I'm all for discourse and and arguing points and and you know pros and cons and and, and nothing's perfect and everybody has different taste. But therein lies the apotheosis of this argument that they're making against the movie. Just because they don't like it, you're supposed nobody should. Yeah, nobody should. And that's taken to the umpteenth degree. If you take a few years back from this, a little film called Friday the 13th. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but Gene Siskel, before there even was a word for this, Gene Siskel doxed Betsy Palmer 
the star of the original really? Friday the 13th because he was pissed off that she had even considered being in a movie like this. So I I have just a, an unruly disdain for them because of the way that they've handled things. And neither of them are with us right now. And I don't like to speak ill of the dead. That being said, fuck them. And uh, <laughs> Roger Ebert is not exempt from all this as well. Roger Ebert who wrote one of the absolute worst films of all time, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which is pretty much just porn. How can you... How can you crit- Without enough titties, though. How can you critique someone's f- film when you are incapable of, of making anything that's worth a shit? Um, I guess that's kind of what I'm doing. Like, I, I don't have a background, but I'm not offering up my opinion as fact. How do you feel about Siskel and Ebert? Honestly... I I feel like they often make good points in movies that are universally recognized as good. They can see good when it's obvious. Where Siskel and Ebert to me have a hard time had a hard time spotting a good movie was when it wasn't obvious. When it was something that you needed uh offbeat or quirky taste to enjoy. They're they're as mainstream as mainstream gets, in my opinion. That's that's how I feel about them. Now, my the other podcast I'm available on uh, currently called Wrestling Ruined, which I know wrestling is is not the the reason you're here right now. But there is a guy by the name of Dave Meltzer. Dave Meltzer is a journalist, and oftentimes he has a lot of uh, legitimate uh, things that he breaks stories, and these things are like immutable like they're like they're this fact but he will release his opinion about things but state it sort of as fact and he has a cult of people that sort of follow his ideology and and they take his word as just you know proof positive and i kind of feel that uh, Siskel and Ebert had the same sort Absolutely. of they had that cult mentality about them of the people who followed them they followed them because they're Siskel and Ebert not the, necessarily because their opinions were more valid than like Rex Reed or, you know, mm-hmm. who whoever else. It's because they had the the show on, you know, Saturday evenings or Sundays, whenever it was. Yeah. Not to interrupt that brilliant <clears throat> discussion, but how odd is it to have a like Jamaican owned bicycle shop? That, that just seems really <laughs> weird. And even as a kid, I was like, What's the deal with Chuck? Like, I want to know how Chuck came to own this, uh, you know, well, San Bernardino bicycle shop or wherever the hell they are. If, if it this, never expressly says. If this movie were made now, uh, they would. There would be a <laughs> spinoff film. There, the uh, just about Chuck. The extended, the extended universe of Pete. Like Francis would have had a prequel movie where we find out that he was abused or something, and he, that's why. <laughs> that's became, why only. That's, yeah, Father Buxton was uh, <laughs> giving him the thumb up the ass or something. Yeah, oh yeah. I, I think. Uh, I, th- I think that something else that we didn't mention. There was yet another roving gang of bicycle children in the in the bike shop, and they were all wearing their matching paraphernalias. Really strange. We didn't see that in my my neighborhood growing up. What about you? I there, well, I moved around a lot as a kid, um, and I can tell you the the one subdivision that I lived in that had people that rode bicycles. They were mostly elderly people because I lived near the cul-de-sac, and they would just ride around in circles for twenty minutes. And uh, it really impeded me from wanting to get out and do it because I don't know if you remember this because you're a little older than I am. But 
around Thanks. in the early. Well, I'm not saying that in a <laughs> negative way. I'm just saying this is a stating a fact. But in the uh, in the early '90s, they released this type of bicycle that was made to look like a crotch rocket. Yeah, there there was like almost um, what I always called them night rider bikes. It was like playing on the Night Rider Blue Thunder. Like you got to yeah. have like plasticky shit oh, tacked I, onto your bike. My my grandmother got me that for my birthday one year, you know, to encourage me to to go outside. <laughs> so uh, I mean, I would ride it, but anytime those old people were out there, I just I was like, no, they're they're killing the vibe, man. <laughs> and now it's funny because I'm probably closer to their age than. The um, they were to mine, you know. Hey, wrestling, <coughs> wrestling, wrestling ruined reference here. That. Uh, that's Pro- Professor Tanaka. Yeah, uh, former uh, tag team partner of Mr. Fuji. Mr. Fuji, who uh, Brandon and I indirectly knew about growing up because he fucking lived right here. Uh, yeah, in in Morristown, Tennessee, he was uh, sort of t- notorious for uh, telling people he would train them. He would take their money up front and then would just not. <laughs> uh, he worked at a, a movie theater down the road from here. Uh, up allegedly. The, no, no, he lived No, here. no, he worked at the movie theater. I, I, I was allegedly on oh, no. here. Uh, oh, no, he's he's dead. Fuck yeah, him. He, he, can't, he can't sue me now. Um, as a kid, how, how jealous were you of, uh, of this Fucking indoor pool bathtub. Very. I wanted the USS flag in that bathtub <laughs> with the hovercraft and all my GI Joe battles. Um, this is actually this may have made me hate Francis worse than him stealing Pee Wee's bike. The fact that he had this this massive bathtub, which my daughter calls his swimming pool. Well, I mean, it, it might as well be. Yeah. He's well, wearing swim trunks, which is odd for a bath. Well, it goes I mean, back to the theory of his dad diddles him, which is why he's. It's, there's a, he's, it's, it's protective. There's a protective layer yeah. covering them. I mean, look at look, him. He's wearing I, like a weird onesie it, thing. It's weird. Uh, true. I actually meant to mention this earlier when Francis first showed up, but my my grandfather, my step grandfather, um, he he was notorious for wearing these kind of onesie <laughs> outfits and stuff, and. I, when I was a kid, I, I thought it was kind of cool because I'm like, man, that's kind of like a Ghostbusters jumpsuit. <laughs> um, but I remember being about like 13 years old, and uh, he he came to um, it's like some kind of function at my school, and he was wearing that, and I was so embarrassed. <laughs> I I was like, oh my god, could you like could you have told him to like wear anything else? You know what's so weird too? Looking back at this. I remember as a kid thinking like, Francis, you big fat fuck, you're nasty. And now you look at him, it's like, dude, you see 20 people like that at Walmart. <laughs> Any trip. I mean, he's not that fat by today's standards. In, in 2020 standards, he's 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 only slightly overweight. <laughs> yeah, it's... Charles, fuck you, Charles Nelson Riley. not thieves. <laughs> uh, he, Mark Holton is legitimately great in this. <laughs> yes. I, do you think that like... Is he a Hollywood attorney now? He I, it seems like I'm not a hundred percent sure. Uh, I know that he still he still acts fairly regularly. Um, you Maybe know. I'm getting him confused with Shelley. Uh, oh no, that, yeah, Shelley from Friday the Thirteenth Part Three. He is definitely a a, a a entertainment lawyer now. I don't know why I thought that that. But do you think that like Mark Holton? Uh, I mean, he has. He's perfect as a character actor because he just mm-hmm. has a, he has a a very specific look. Um, do you think that that probably hurt his? Oh, absolutely. Or- I mean, he this movie and along with Teen Wolf 
and that kind of pigeonholed him a little <laughs> bit. He's the in, in Teen Wolf, he's a likable character. I mean, he's the buddy that that finds the bowl of jello in the in the girl's shirt, and he's the wild and crazy guy, <laughs> makes a hook shot or two. He's like their uh offbeat scoring option, but yeah. Whatever whatever it did, he, he's thank God he exists because he's perfect for those two roles at least. Oh, and we haven't even mentioned uh well, Dottie. We'll we'll get to Dottie in a little bit later. I want to talk a bit about um how we got to kind of this point. Now, back to Siskel and Ebert. Now Siskel mentioned the skits on the show, mm-hmm. and that's a perfect segue to look back and kind of discuss the humble beginnings of the character of Pee Wee Herman. So let's go from page to screen. Now, the character of Pee Wee Herman originated during a 1978 improvisation exercise with the Groundlings, where Rubens came up with the idea of a man who wanted to be a comic, but he was so inept at telling jokes that it was obvious to the audience that he would just never make it. Now, Rubens auditioned for Saturday Night Live for the 1980-1981 season, but he lost the role to his good friend, Gilbert Godfrey, who, unfortunately, we just lost fairly recently I loved I loved Gilbert Godfrey. Uh, he's so you know, I've wasted him. <clears throat> oh well, they would have wasted Rubens too. That's at that uh, point. that's probably true. Now the eighty eighty one season of SNL is remembered as one of the all time worst. Um, we'll get that. That's a myriad of reasons. We're not going to get into the minutia as to why. Um, but it it's strange to think that like the Pee Wee Herman character could have been on SNL. Uh, do you think Pee Wee would have been bigger, uh, the character, if it had been like on network television? You know, I don't know. I really don't think so. I think, I think being on network television in that aspect, it would have, um, ruined maybe some of the sweetness of the character, which, you know, he was a very kid friendly character. Well, well, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in terms of, you know, Pee Wee's Playhouse. But look at it this way. that That's the season that launched the career of Eddie Murphy. True. So, I mean... Lauren Michaels was gone that year, right? Yeah, it was uh, Brandon Tartikoff. Tartikoff, yeah. Tartikoff, who later was head of the network. Especially the uh, sports wing of yeah. NBC. Um, there's actually a really good documentary about... Uh, that, that season of SNL, I, I would highly recommend you seek it out, if for no other reason, just to you know, kind of see the how SNL survived a season that you know was so either uh, too bizarre to be funny or just so bad it shouldn't have existed to begin with. Um, Rubens was so angry and bitter that he didn't get hired that he decided that he was going to borrow money and he started his own show in Los Angeles and the Pee Wee Herman character would become, you know, the Pee Wee Herman character that we know and love. And he started the Pee Wee Herman show, which ran from 1981 to 1984 with the help of John Paragon, who's another guy we lost uh, in the past few years. He was a zombie, the genie on Pee Wee's Playhouse. Uh, Phil Hartman, who obviously a, a huge SNL character, and he had a hand in the show, and Lynn Marie Stewart. Uh, mm-hmm. They went to the Roxy Theater. Uh, the PV it just ran for like uh, five months, complete sellouts. It was a huge hit, and they were doing midnight shows for adults, and they were doing weekly matinees for children. So wow. here's the first sort of split of like what the character means to people, because mm-hmm. there are people of that time period who know Pee Wee Herman as a really subversive, adult, 
oriented character, and then there's the the sweet pie in the sky, you know, maybe with a little shade of mm-hmm. you know edge to him, but aimed at kids character. Now, have you seen any of the HBO specials? No, I haven't. I I would recommend uh, when you leave here, go and track one down because as as a kid when I f- discovered this, it was shocking and i mean that genuinely shocking because to me peewee was a character for kids right in the show there's a part where uh i'm blanking on she's uh she plays a character on the tv show but uh, in uh, on the hbo specials she plays a different character but she's wearing a dress and peewee has a mirror on his shoe <laughs> so he can see up her dress and I'm thinking, like, what the fuck is going on? That's right out of Paul Rubin's real, <laughs> real closet. I mean, we'll get to it. <laughs> we'll get to it. I love this scene, by the way. This, this is very um, Batman. Yeah, it's just like kind of showing the the, the tone yeah. of like you know. You ever very, dance with the devil in the pale moon? Exactly. Mind? Very uh, dark and moody, uh, straight out of uh, you know a scene in Gotham City. Mm-hmm. All you need is. Uh, the bat signal. I better with Bob. Yeah, if, uh, exactly. Bob, you're my number one guy. <laughs> um, do you think that now that knowing what we know mm-hmm. uh, about, you know, the encompassment of the, the Pee Wee character, do you think a raunchier, more adult oriented version of Pee Wee Herman, that would have been a direction that they could have gone with? I think they could have. I think. I think the shelf life of the character might not have been as long had they gone that route. It might have been the, I mean, I hesitate to say, but the the dice clay, like, really quick rise to the top and then kind of quick down, people forget about you quickly. Let me me counter with that. What do you think if now, what if they made a new Pee Wee Herman movie and they're like, fuck it, we're going to make an adult Pee Wee Herman movie and we're not going to aim it towards children. We're going to aim it towards the our age range who were children at the time of this movie's release. I think that is how Pee Wee could work today. I think it would be very hard for Paul Rubens, the age he is today, to go over with children as Pee Wee. But I think adults, especially in the nostalgia era, would eat that shit up. I I think for one, uh that especially if they lean a little into the real life complications that Paul Rubens has had that you could have a lot of fun with that. And mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's obviously not ashamed to the point where you know, he hasn't referenced it in the past. In fact, there's a very, we might as well just get into it. Wasn't he on the MTV movie awards? Or yes. Something? And he's like, yeah. heard any good stories lately? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but if you don't know, and I don't know how you could, couldn't know by this point, but Paul Rubens, uh, well past, you know, the cancellation of the TV show and, you know, the movies, he decided that he was going to go to a porn theater and he relieved himself, which just begs the question. It's like, who would go to a porn theater and just get blue balls? I, <laughs> I, I even as a kid, I'm thinking like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Like, why? Why wouldn't he go and just Plop I mean, one out. By the way, I love this uh his giant thumb as he's hitchhiking right here. That's 
that's something straight out of a Looney Tunes cartoon. And he has like he says the fucking uh, what do they call it a biddle? Yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> the hobo uh, sack <laughs> on a stick. By the way, here's an interesting fact: the Texas there, where the star is. That's not actually where he wants to go. That's that's where the facade yes. of the Alamo is, not the actual the real Al- Alamo. Alamo. Yeah, not San Antonio. I have actually been to the Alamo. Really? Yes. And I do not think that the tour guide had any idea what I was talking about when I asked if we were going to see the basement. I oh, think it went right over the head, which makes me very, very sad. That should be like a training. That should be in training <laughs> for that job. Um. Another good character actor just showed up from uh, Red Dawn. Uh, uh, several uh, several movies mm-hmm. uh, this this gentleman has appeared in. Uh, let me get to my notes to where he's at. This is... Um, we have um, Judd Omen as Mickey the Escaped Convict. He's in David Lynch's Dune, Red Dawn, Howling 2, Chud 2, Doll Man, and an episode of Freddy's Nightmares. Mm-hmm. So he's he's had a pretty good uh, pretty good run as a character actor. He, he was kind of the high-ranking, uh, or one of the high-ranking like Cuban a, officers when Red Dawn. Nicaragua. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Um, He's he's very intense. That's his trademark, just intensity. And he exudes it in this. I mean, as a kid, th- these this part I was always kind of like on the edge of my seat like, "Oh no, is he is is uh he going to shank Pee-wee <laughs> here in the car?" And uh maybe if Pee-wee didn't wear that cute little outfit. Oh, know. it's it's just too much. The, it's the it's the uh Evidently, when uh, I mean, it's going to happen here in a bit where where Pee Wee dresses in drag, but he modeled his his look on his real life sister, which that's got to be weird. Yeah, um, I heard that, and also heard olive oil that he's there's a little bit of olive oil. Well, there. I think that's sort so of maybe it, people see that. Yeah, I, I think the, the way that he's dressed is uh, is his sister, and his mannerisms are a little more olive oil. Popeye, because he yeah. does, he does say something like that. And there, this is the the joke of all jokes that there, right there, is his bike, and he turns left when it keeps going straight. If you stop frame by frame, right there, uh, which I did recently, it says something about bicycle rental on the side of that truck. So how how it went from the gang to a bicycle rental is kind of unclear. But, uh, uh, who who knows? Uh, <laughs> you, I mean, the great the great thing about this story. And I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but this script is held in incredibly high regard now. A lot of writing teachers actually use this as sort of a template because when they got together, they being, um, I believe it was Perry Herman, Phil Hartman, and and John Paragon. Yes. They got together. They they didn't have a clue in how to write a script. So they they got a book and they followed basically to to, to the letter. And... And we're seeing him. I mean, he is. He's. I'll be just be honest with you. He's more attractive than Shelley Duvall is. (laughs) (laughs) You know, looking at this with a 2020 lens or 20, excuse me, 2022 lens, it's like uh, this is a perfect example of the shit that people protest about. The cop has him get out, turn around just because he wants to check him out. It's very, very like misogynistic, shitty. Uh, but th- this is she's oh she peewee as a lady is is dressed i mean exactly like a woolite <laughs> ad from like 1955 
<laughs> I just want to see that cute little outfit you got on. So, <laughs> you have a nice day. It's good stuff. Good stuff. A, fa- a a fake goatee. That's all it takes. That's all Ooh. it takes to to fool to fool the cops. Um, I remember this this line coming up about cutting the uh, tag off a mattress. I remember. <laughs> as a kid like thinking just like peewee like like that's a completely logical th- like oh yeah that's a that's a dumb rule but but thinking like that somebody might actually come to your house if you cut that tag off so ridiculous yeah it, it, it is one of those like sort of old wives tale where you know it's funny because our our generation is so influenced by popular media where sometimes the truth we get from movies and then we hold it as truth. And, mm-hmm. and then when reality kind of fogs into that, we're like, what? But Pee Wee said, you know, right. um, but yeah, I, I, I thought the same thing. Like, I mean, if you cut the tag off of a mattress, like you, you know, they're <laughs> going to cry. Yeah. The dream police are going to come <laughs> and, and, and arrest you. Um, this is, so I was thinking about this. I, I know, um, we've got stuff to talk about, but this, this scene here where he's going through all these curves and things, I had never thought about this. We're around the same area where Large Marge died in a horrible crash. Yeah. Did Large Marge, was she driving her truck around these <laughs> S-curves, these crazy, like, uh, spiral curves? Is that what killed Large Marge? I but, don't know, but you, these these scenes, this is just <laughs> classic film trickery where, I mean, it's just... <laughs> You know, it's just a, bl- a completely blacked out background and they're blowing air and uh, they've got it like on a gimbal or whatever. And I would love I, to see some science geek out there do a terminal velocity study. How many feet they would have fallen in that amount of time? Well, I mean, it would be higher than any peak in Texas for sure. <laughs> but the but the, the saving grace is, you know, raising raising the top and it, it works as a parachute. I it's mean, amazing. That, that's straight out of uh, you know, let's Looney Tunes logic, <laughs> and and this movie can get away it with a it. Lot of, yeah, I because mean, it it sets the tone. I'm 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 a big believer that you can do anything in a movie, but you kind of have to set the parameters of what your your world allows. That way, yeah. that way, if you do something different, it comes as a shock, or it's like okay, well, that's par for the course. Right. It's not a, just a. a, a a moment of doing whatever you want to do for the sake of doing it. But the little things at the beginning of the movie with, you know, the Rube Goldberg stuff, it just shows you this is sort of a whimsical world and you don't have to take it too seriously. Cartoon here for crying out loud. I mean, (laughs) I can remember as a kid pausing this, this lighted scene just to see how many of the animals are alive and how many were stuffed. (laughs) There is a live cougar in the, in the picture. And maybe a raccoon. Uh, I don't remember exactly. I know the cougars in the top left. It just shows you how how different the mindset is in making films now. Because if this were made now, it would just be an overblown CGI scene mm-hmm. with a bunch of stuff, and it would just be just noise for the sake of noise. He's using the second of the three items that he got at the uh, <laughs> the trick shop. That's right true. Now. And he never uses the third, the third oh, item, the well. uh, the bow tie. The boomerang bow tie. D- does he not? No, it's it was a deleted scene. Believe it or not, I've never, uh, okay, I've uh, never seen that deleted scene. But I, I started to say I, I have seen it. 
But now we're coming to probably the most iconic stretch of this movie, and probably for the the reasons that it's not even uh, was intended. Um, the great thing about movies in the eighties, in particular, is that they could be aimed at children, but they would still have this subversive quality in wanting to scare the absolute shit out of them. Mm-hmm. This actress is uh, her. Her name is Alice Nunn, and she she had a pretty popular uh, run as a character actress in a lot of like you know really weird horror films and, and, and things of that nature. She was in Delusion. She was in Mommy Dearest. Uh, she oh, was wow. Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, which to this day I still say is probably the scariest made-for-TV movie ever made. And she is in uh, a film that hopefully, knock on wood, we're going to be bringing back uh, to do a, uh, a in-depth retrospective for Trick or Treat. Now, we just missed it, but she just did the the claymation uh, scare. but Scared the immortal bejesus out of me at age seven or eight or however old I was when I first watched it. It's not scary. <laughs> But the t- the tone set is it's it's because it comes so far out of nowhere. It's like the it's same, a jump scare almost. It's the well, it's it's an effective jump scare uh, because you're not you're not seeing it coming. But it's it's very similar to there's a jump scare in the the Twilight Zone movie where uh, <laughs> it's um, Dan Aykroyd and oh my god I'm blanking on his name Albert Brooks Albert Brooks. And it's like, hey, you want to see something scary? He turns around and he's like, yeah, and he's got the, you know, the prosthetic makeup on and everything. And that is so fucking effective in that movie. But it is like 10 times effective in this because you're not expecting it. Well, you're not expecting it. And also you're a you're it's you think this is a safe kids movie. Now, there's a couple of parts in this film where you get kind of the offbeat, uh, unintended, or, or I guess intended, but uh, riding the line uh, horror shot. Bass. This, the, <laughs> that guy always always makes me think of the kick his ass Seabass from Dumb and Dumber. It also reminds me of the scene in, I don't know if you uh, remember this, in uh, the, the sequel to Superman, where he loses oh, yeah. his powers and he goes, he goes in to the and, diner and yeah. the redneck kicks his ass. But the... It, it definitely, whoever... Uh, Whoever did the set design for for this scene, they've been in a redneck uh, trucker diner before. Is <laughs> it that dude looks like right out of like they just picked him up? Yeah, I mean they look. There's a tendency in like Hollywood movies, you either overdo like a character, mm-hmm. like a, a caricature, to where it's like they ain't got no teeth and like they're right. they're, they're grimy. But these these look like lived in, yeah. worn people. They they feel real. Or Simone, our first glance of Simone. Simone, who uh, is played by Diane Salinger, no relation to uh, JD Salinger, James David, nope. or uh, Matt, or Matt Salinger from the terrible Captain, <laughs> Captain America, America film. Uh, however, uh, a lot of people more contemporarily, probably the generation after ours, would know her as. I'm going to mispronounce this. Queen Banshira in several Power Rangers series. Huh. 
Yeah, I Power Rangers was a little after my time, and I'm assuming that's from like you know more later after even the ones that were didn't viewing as a kid. Didn't she have a couple appearances in uh, Tim Burton's Batman movies? She, uh, well, here cameos. Th- here's the fun thing: mm-hmm. uh, both her and Paul Rubens are in Batman Returns. They play uh, Oswald Cobblepot's mother and father. Oswald okay. Cobblepot being the Penguin, uh, Danny DeVito's yeah. character. Um, and I think. Um, What's his name? Uh, that played, uh, shoot, one of the characters on Pee Wee's Playhouse. Um, I think he had a role also. Um, the one that played uh, Jombie or John Paragon. Yeah, did he have a role in one of the Batman movies? Uh, it's possible. Uh, Offhand, I, I'm not. I'm not sure. As a kid, I looked at Simone, and I did not. <laughs> I did not find her attractive in the least. I gotta say, as a 38 year old man, it's kind of working for me. I think it's the waitress outfit. Maybe I. I know this sounds really bad, and I apologize, Miss Salinger, if you ever hear this, which I really don't think you will. I kind of thought she was maybe a man. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid, I remember having that thought, like, there's something very deep about her voice that that just, in Bluto, I was like, why the hell did Bluto, where, where's Papa? Because Andy. Well, we, we already had olive oil. Yeah, so Andy it, here definitely takes on a, a Bluto uh, caricature. That's true. Now, as a kid, this is, this is, this, this is another, this is another thing that, like, I, I sort of, had internalized to the point of you could have put a piece of coal in my rear end and made a diamond. I was so jealous about this. I I wanted to go inside of a dinosaur. Uh Like why, why are, I know that Tim Burton, we'll get to Tim Burton in just a moment, but like Tim Burton is a very imaginative guy to, to varying degrees. And and this stuff is, um, some, some of it comes from him and some of it comes from, you know, Paul Rubens. It's a collaborative medium. But he has a way of like taking. I mean, it may have been on on the page is one thing, but he you can't help but like notice the the extent that Tim Burton goes to just heighten something ridiculous to like the ten thousandth degree. But I, there may be a place where you can sit in a dinosaur's mouth and look out of it. I, I it's very possible. I mean, Texas. But I <laughs> but I doubt that it looks. It's a big. Is it pink or is it orange? I can't remember. I'm looking at it right now. It's kind of a... Who knows? I, had, I mean, the, with, in the dark, in you the can't dark. really tell. I, but I, I just don't see that there's a there's a neon dinosaur <laughs> in Texas that you can sit in its mouth. That's just me. Maybe more, I'm wrong. More tigers in captivity in Texas than there are wild in the world. Well... So Texas is a crazy place. Uh, well, <laughs> that, that very well may be true. Let's talk about Simone's big butt. I I I love this scene. I, I love this scene. It's it's everyone I know has a big butt. Oh. Simone's dream is that I love you know, Andy right here. <laughs> she wants she wants to go to Paris, which is sort of if you look at the very beginning of this movie. Um, oh, yeah. Pee Wee, Pee Wee, the tour to France. Never and, thought about. And he that. goes out there and like there's the Eiffel Tower so on the it's stage. His big dream. Well, and it, and in a may, way. It makes me wonder if there is some element of this film that is supposed to be not to be taken literally. Like, is this 
is some of this just in Pee Wee's head? Yeah. Is this like, is this a kid daydreaming? Because this is very much like something a kid would want. An adult is not going to go, like, I want to sit in a dinosaur's mouth. Well, mm-hmm. I'm in general. But it's it's something that like a seven year old kid would be like, yeah, I want to, I want to sit in a dinosaur's mouth, and 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 I know somebody that wants to go to France. You know, yeah. I don't know. It just doesn't seem like something literal. So I, I, maybe funny I'm- side note: as I was watching this with my six year old fairly recently, my thirteen year old stumbled in, and he remembered Andy as being buff. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, you must have been watching the wrong movie. So, And he watched this movie a dozen times at least. And and he had a total false memory. I think it's maybe just the height difference. Maybe that he thought. Well, I, or, or we're in a movie. <laughs> By the way, um, also the dinosaurs are different colors now. Huh. Uh, they're, they're like naturally shaded. Like they look like when you, what colors you would think a dinosaur would be. They're not like bright neon colors this is this is another thing like as a kid uh i don't know if you ever did you ever threaten to run away when you were a kid i i did i didn't think about hopping the the rails well here's the thing i grew up in morristown tennessee which is like a hub for mm-hmm. you know, trains and stuff so if i wanted to hop on a train i i could have now whether or not i would have gotten you know further than five miles away who knows um this is the other scene i was alluding to that is uh bizarre and you know oddly scarier the than... dream sequences are all odd in this movie i is this is this one or there is there just this one or no, no there's there, the other there with, the hospital. With, with the uh the the clown hospital which, which is fucking terrifying yeah <laughs> stamp <laughs> Do you know anything about this actor, this character actor, Hobo? Um, yeah, he's good. He's 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 terrific. He's he's in a, a ton <laughs> of movies. He usually plays toothless uh, hobos, kind of well that or you know the the kind of guy that would stand out on the corner and 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 scream about you know doomsday is coming that kind of yeah, stuff. yeah. I could I could see him doing the camp blood. <laughs> uh, um, he I and I and if I'm uh, misremembering. I'm pretty sure this is the same actor, but I think he's in Halloween Four. I believe he's the guy who plays the the preacher, the dr- the dr- the drinking preacher who picks up Donald <laughs> Pleasance on his way to Haddonfield. Otherwise, it's just a character actor who looks the very very similar. But either way, th- this guy's been in tons of stuff, and you know, and you know, pretty much played the same character. And I love the uh, the dissolve there to show over time this guy's gotten on his fucking nerves, which is funny because uh, that's sort of the the rap that people have about Pee Wee is kind of being right, you know, a, an annoying character. Did you a three hour meeting in the basement about his missing bicycle? Yes, yeah. And he jumps off the train. Um, perception wise, like as a kid, like you know, you're probably more tolerant for loud and you know and kind of brash annoying characters i never found peewee annoying but like just over the years and talking with it about people i i was amazed at how many people like oh my god i fucking hate peewee herman Mm -hmm. um you know you know is that something you've came across we have jan hooks i love jan hooks in this role jan hooks was brilliant she was her her brilliance was never fully recognized i don't she she had a reoccurring role on Third Rock from the Sun mm-hmm. as 
oh my god, what's his name? French Stewart's love interest, and um, her name was Vicky, and she was her character was basically she was a slut, and she's so talented, and unfortunately she's not with us anymore either. You know, she ad libbed a ton of this dialogue. She did. Uh, she, uh, you know, having a, a background. I, I can't remember if she was if she was in the groundlings. Was she groundling I, she, before she? She was may in have been. SNL? She may have been in Second City, but either way, she had a background in. I bet she was in Groundlings because so many of the people in this had connections to Groundlings. But, but I mean, she went on to be in SNL for you know during during a time when it was incredibly popular, sort of that resurgence, and in the late eighties, early nineties, and yeah, she left us way too soon. She, I, I read something. Um, oh gosh, what's what's her name from uh, Thirty Rock? Uh, well, the Veep. character Liz Veep. Lemon. No, Veep. Uh, the the main the main chick from Veep and oh Julie Louis Dreyfus. Yeah, she had said a, a. I think it was her that said basically like it's a shame that she did not get her shot at starring in her own movies and things. And and she was saying how so many Saturday Night Live people got a shot in a movie. As in a starring role that had way less talent than oh, she did. Oh, that's that's absolutely true. I mean, let's let's not paint the picture as being yeah, entirely I mean, morose because she she had a very and she lived life hard and she loved the life she lived and didn't want to. Yeah, I mean, even as she was dying, she was still drinking and smoking and. Well, good for her. Where's the basement? Are we <laughs> going to see the basement? There's no basement in the Alamo. As someone who's been to the Alamo, I can tell you it is a very short tour because it's not a huge building. It's if you go with a huge uh, idea that this is going to be the most amazing thing you've ever seen, you're going to be sorely, mis- you know, disappointed. It's funny because the Alamo, from it's great my, for what it is. From my neck of the woods, has somewhat of a mystique because I grew up in Morristown, Tennessee, home of Davy Crockett. Um. Whether or not you believe certain aspects, uh, David Crockett may have been a complete uh, um, coward at the Alamo, who who actually knows. Um, but truth of the matter is, is uh, the Alamo in my neck of the woods is is was talked about constantly, uh, just because of its you know association with our. Our hometown hero. He was never the hometown hero for me. That being Bruce Campbell and the Evil Dead, because it was shot in Morristown, Tennessee, as well. Simone's going to Paris. Good for her. Wow. Au revoir, au revoir, <laughs> Pee Wee. So I guess now would be a good time for me to, to tell my my Pee Wee Herman story. So we alluded to his his troubles and you know whacking his. Tallywhacker in the in the <laughs> in the porn theater. Now, I loved Pee Wee Herman. I mean, I worshipped Pee Wee Herman at that like time. The TV show was just a staple for me. I had the toys, which I remember going to Hills. Hills is where the toys is, mm-hmm. and you know, buying the what toys uh, are where the toys are. Well, you know where <laughs> you know where town showing. Yeah, true. Um, but you know, I had I had the the cherry that had the you know it it had like a material over it, so it had kind of a fuzzy material, and um and I and the the piece de resistance of my collection was the like the the doll like the the pull string that mm-hmm. had phrases. 
And I had that thing on a shelf. And that thing was on a shelf for years. Well, I come from home from school one day, and it's gone. And I asked my mom, like, where's Pee Wee Herman? And she's like, oh, I, I, I don't know. Maybe someone stole it. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you need to call the police. <laughs> and she was like, no, no, it'll, it'll be fine. She, I mean, she's just trying to cover her tracks. Well, what had happened is, you know, my, my mom being from the generation that she she was, um, you know, just, you know, was like, oh, my God, you know, this guy's a, you know, a, a pervert and I can't allow my, my child to have any association with it. I even going so far to use the word quote unquote gay <laughs> because it was it was a different time. My mom's not a bigoted person, but you know, and she she was looking out for my best interest. And I was genuinely heartbroken. But looking back as an adult, because now I know the truth is, you know, she, you know, hid it away and, you know, she didn't actually throw it away because I actually have it. It's, it's, it's here in the Black Lodge. I still, I still have him. His, his pull cord, you know, doesn't work. It just sounds like scrambled mess when he talks now, but I still have the doll, but she took it away from me because I guess she didn't want that corruption upon me. But I look back and it's like, you realize at a certain point, like, man, my parents lied to me about stuff. And I come to realize that wait a minute, this is exactly how they got me off the bottle. This is how they got me off of the pacifier because Slimer stole those things. And I'm like, well, why do I ever see Slimer? Like, I want to be Slimer's friend. Well, he doesn't like you. And I'm like, well, though, why? Why doesn't he like me? Because you're a baby that takes a bottle. <sighs> I get it. So, I, are we going to talk about Dottie at some point? Yes, let's, she is let's, freaking hot. Let's actually talk about her right now. That'd be E.G. Daly, Elizabeth Daly. Um, as she became Dottie. E.G. when she rocked out, right? Uh, well, she, she was Elizabeth Daly when she filmed this, but yeah. when she started doing more Music. voice work, uh, she became E.G. Daly. It's just, um, it's probably a Screen Actors Guild. Did she Sorry, release her albums as E.G. or Elizabeth? I'm know? not 100% sure. Okay, because she had a couple of music albums in the uh, 80s. She's incredibly talented, and that's to say the least. Uh, she was in Tom McLaughlin's One Dark Night, which I highly recommend. It's it's a, a gothic horror film um, in the, like, it's maybe like 1985, 84, somewhere in there. It's on Tubi right now. If you get a chance and you want to see something you've never seen before that you'll like, how the fuck do I know about this movie? Check it out. If you want to pull a little bit of your own Paul Rubens action, you should watch her in Valley Girl. Yes, that's actually next on the list. Um, she's in Streets of Fire, uh, Better Off Dead, Bad Dreams. And more recently, uh, she kind of came back into prominence uh, working on screen in some Rob Zombie films. Mm -hmm. uh, she was in um, Devil's Rejects in 31. However, most people would know her from her notoriety as being Buttercup on the Powerpuff Girls, Tommy Pickles on Rugrats, and, you know, like, her IMDb thing goes on is longer than a mile. The thing is just just impeccable, the, the amount of things that she's been in. So, low-key, is she the hottest 80s girl that no one ever talks about? Like like movie question. movies movie character wise. That's a good question because I didn't I, give a shit about Dottie then, but now yeah, holy I, fuck! I know, I know. She's so cute, so undeniably cute, and even 
even in her mature age that she is today. I mean, she's, she's still she's close to like she's close to probably seventy, and she's, she's attractive very woman. attractive. I actually saw her at a convention at Lex- Lexington, Kentucky, is Lexicon, and I was blown away by how attractive she, she was. She has a beautiful daughter as well, who Paris Hilton's uh, brother was obsessed with and may have caught a stalking charge over. Oh, well, fuck the Hiltons. Yeah, anyway. But, yes, uh, E.G. Daly, prime. Um, so, here, here's the thing. Um, oh, do you know what her first appearance was? Uh, I think I do, but it like First me. screen appearance, Laverne and Shirley. Oh. She was the leader of a bad a gang of bad girls. Oh. And she's mega smoking hot in that, that too. That's that's how I like to think of her as a bad girl. Yeah. So oddly enough, as perfect as she is in the role, uh she was not the first choice. Lori Loughlin, Laura Dern, Phoebe Cates, Leah Thompson, Jason Jennifer uh, Jennifer Jennifer, Jason. Jennifer Jason Lee, uh were all considered ah. for the role of Dottie. Would any of those have been better than than her? I don't think any I, I can't of course, once you've seen it the way it is, you can't. It's hard to imagine it differently. I'm sure they could have done the role justice, but she's got that perfect voice. The, I think the, the voice is what separates she, her. She's just though a lot of those actresses are like babes. She is cute, adorable. Like she's dotty. She's dotty. I just watched a a film that I haven't oh. seen in a long time uh, called The Other Kids. With Lori Loughlin mm-hmm. when she was like, you know, uh, been around this same time. Before she was paying off colleges to, e- yes, get, her to get her kids in. Yeah. Um, before she was banging Uncle Jesse. <laughs> um, but she has a really sweet quality to her as well. Mm-hmm. But I think it's the voice. I think the voice is what puts E.G. Daly over over the line. And it's funny because that's basically her legacy if you break it down. Yeah. She's going to be remembered as like one of the, the great voice actors. She's of, made her nut on her voice. Pretty much. Sure. Her, indeed. Yeah. And we have among the more notable scenes of the film this, this biker bar mm. and the Satan's helpers. You know, you made an allusion to Friday the 13th Part 3 earlier with that talking about Shelly. But, mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is very similar to a, a part that happens in that film, only there is no, uh, you know, biker punching through the, the windshield of a Volkswagen Beetle because they knocked the motorcycles over. I say we stomp him. Then we tattoo him. Then we hang him. And then we'll kill him <laughs> because he's going to survive the hanging. I love, I love that. I say we let him go. That's and here comes your uh, all time. I I have to say, um, I love Cassandra Peterson. I have I've met her twice, once in costume and once out of costume. I was just gushing about how attractive E.G. Daly is in person. And I don't say this lightly. I I have never seen a woman that age who looks as good in person as Cassandra Peterson. And for those of you, uh, I don't know, born yesterday that don't know who Cassandra Peterson is, inform them. Uh, it would be Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Now, oddly enough, like her seeing her in costume, I love that part. The little head nod. Ah, <laughs> oh, so good. Anyway, go ahead. But seeing Cassandra Peterson. As Elvira was just that—that that was 
basically a hashtag zipper rash kind of moment <laughs> because I mean the those those things were on display but even seeing her as Cassandra Peterson just in like natural clothes and her beautiful red hair which I I love she's just a natural beauty mm-hmm. and um her her autobiography came out and I mean it confirmed what I mean pretty much everybody in the know already knew is that she's a lesbian um she lost her virginity to Tom Jones and he ruined it for for all of us I've heard Tom Jones has ruined it for everybody that's had a woman after him Tom Tom I, Jones uh uh evidently packing a an and anaconda the, down there in the words of Beth Littleton rumor has it you're hung like a horse <laughs> <laughs> there's no, there's not a rumor that's confirmed. I mean, she she talks about it in the book, and and I highly recommend that autobiography. Um, she's she's such a important part of my. I'm trying to how to phrase this. Uh, the the transition from child to man for me, my my biological father, probably the the greatest thing he ever owned, and I and I'm just hurt beyond belief that I did not inherit this uh, because I think it actually got destroyed in a flood but he had the the gas station stand up of her like beer ad like oh, the, wow. the cardboard stand up and even as a kid before I even understood the correlation between uh, this is interject <laughs> but him running through that sign is hilarious <laughs> Um, but the, but the correlation between an attractive woman and an erection, I didn't, there was no connective tissue there for me. I didn't understand the, 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 the cause and effect that came in seeing, oddly enough, a Tim Burton movie, uh, Batman Returns. And, uh, that was the first time in the theater. I'm like, holy fuck, Michelle Pfeiffer is doing something to my dick. I got this the first time, but I am older than you, but <laughs> Elvira, before I even knew why, there was just something alluring to her. Well, there was two things, and they were very prominent. Uh, but Elvira has been just this constant through my life. And um, uh, thank you, thank you, Cassandra, for uh, giving me so much uh, enjoyment, both you know in terms of entertainment and uh, masturbatory fantasies. And speaking of uh, fantasies, we're we're here with one of the more terrifying elements of this film. This is straight out Dude, of Beetlejuice right here. How many times have I fast forwarded through this scene so that I didn't get scared as shit <laughs> as a 10 year old in my parents' basement watching this movie. There's something about this down the, the, I, I, uh, the, the clowns I, are what I, did it though. I, I hate clowns. I don't, I don't find them scary. However, this reveal right here, that's fucking terrifying. <laughs> um, but it's it's the it's the Beetlejuiceness of it. Uh, those those archways that are mm-hmm. just uh, oblong and they're uh, it's very German expressionist. It's very uh, straight out yeah, of the Cabinet yeah. of Dr. Caligari. Sure. It's very angular and not proportioned properly. I, I as somebody who has just insane OCD. Seeing things like that just puts me on edge. And this is straight out of Haxon, which I don't know if you're familiar with. It's like a 1920s uh, movie about witchcraft, but it's it's sort of like half narrative, half documentary. It's a, a silent film. Probably the scariest black and white movie, uh, with the exception of maybe Nosferatu. But Growing it, up a Southern Baptist in the 80s, uh, the devil was the scariest thing. So them like <laughs> toying with that and bringing it, it was, it was horrifying for 10-year-old me. Oh, Kevin uh, 
old Kevin is about to show up, a.k.a. Jason Hervey. J- Jason Hervey, uh, who uh, wrestling ruin fans will know as being uh, good friends with Eric Bischoff, who was head huh. of WCW. He, he was actually on WCW quite a bit back in the day. Really? And um, Missy Hyatt, who deemed my penis as beautiful, they actually dated. So he maybe he has a beautiful penis, or maybe th- they broke up because his penis was not as beautiful as mine. I'm not really sure. I would I would argue the latter because <laughs> I have the most beautiful penis of anybody that has ever existed. Uh, verifiable proof. Uh, check I'll- that out on Wrestling Ruin. We got to talk about Tim Burton. Uh, we're getting oh, um, Milton Burl. There's a nice little cameo right here. What do you think I have down here? A duck? <laughs> That's I actually looked it up. It's a really dumb joke. I'm not even going to repeat it. But um, there is a whole joke that goes with the punchline that he he told there. This is oh, like this coming up. We have a uh, um, a big uh, sort of cameo. There, there's, there's, there's a few uh, mm-hmm. here on the Warner Brothers lot. This is the actual Warner Brothers lot. Here comes the voice of uh, a couple of characters from Pee Wee's Playhouse, the uh, effeminate voiced guy here. He was that that, that may be um, John Perrigan. Yeah, I think so. Yeah he 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 was a big uh, influence on Elvira's show. They 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 worked together for for years and years. But there it is. He's in his sights. Mother Superior is. Uh, a voice actor from uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse as well. Mother Superior in the scene here. Uh, that's probably a Lynn Marie Stewart. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, but let's talk about Tim Burton. Um, I mean, it'd be kind of pointless to go over his, his entire filmography, but this was his debut film uh, just watching this and not knowing that, would you have ever thought this is someone's first film? No, absolutely not. It, it's it's very well put together, um, and I can see why he got the chance to to move on and up. I mean, it, as you said, with the the financial facts of the movie, anybody that makes a movie for that cost that does that well is going to get a second chance. But he definitely made the most of it. And there's so many Tim Burton-y things about this movie. Yeah, this is sort of like a proto-Tim Burton yeah, film yeah. where it's not it's not full-fledged. And I think that's why I hold it in super high <laughs> regard. It's got just enough Tim Burtonism. Because I, I to, for me, I, I okay, let's just break it down. You've got Pee-wee's Big Adventure. You've got Beetlejuice, which is an all-time classic. Mm-hmm. You've got the first Batman which Edward Scissorhands, um, Ed Wood, which is one of my personal favorite movies. And I think probably the, the end of well, Batman returns, uh, but the end of his probably prolific period probably is Mars attacks, which is a movie I really like, but it was sort of, you know, yeah. Yeah, kind of in the middle in terms of like people liked it. And some people didn't Pee-wee and drag again. When do you think it's, it, it, <laughs> He's that's his, that's very much of his ilk. Um, what do you think that the there actually were three of these yeah. elephants and one of them got stuck in traffic, so they had to go with two. Um, but when do you think that Tim Burton stopped being a creative force and kind of became a caricature of his? Mm, 
Because I have a hard answer uh, that I believe. That's a good question. Um, well, do you want me to answer mine and what you, th- yeah. what you think? So, I am... I hate the Willy Wonka, the, the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I'm but. a huge Planet of the Apes fan. Ah. Uh, and when I heard they were remaking Planet of the Apes, I was furious. But then <laughs> I heard it was Tim Burton. I'm like, okay, I know for a fact, at the very least, the production design and the makeup effects will be good. And the makeup effects are that's probably really that's probably yeah. the last great makeup effect movie. Physical makeup yeah. effect movie. And it's wire work and all that all those elements are great, but the but the story, um, not so much. But that was the first time that I felt like hugely let down by Tim Burton. And it also spurred basically this point in his career where he almost exclusively was adapting other people's work. Mm-hmm. Now, he made Big Fish, which, for the most part, I think is a pretty decent film. But you look at the other things he's made, uh, the, like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and, oh, my God. Um, did he do the Alice in He did Wonderland, Alice, Alice in Wonderland uh, and the sequel. Um, mm-hmm. And both of those are, I will say this, the second one, I can't think, is Alice Through the Looking Glass. That is the ugliest Big budget movie I have ever seen, and I don't. I didn't even I do, know it existed. I do that. not say that lightly. I have never been to a film in the theater and thought up front, like, "Holy fuck, something's wrong with the lens." I thought I thought there was something wrong with the print, or it was being projected wrong. Like, there's no way someone made a, a movie with this ugly of a color palette. But no, it was a it was a legitimate choice. He wanted it to be, you know, distinct and look like a a, a turd that occasionally had red blood spots on it. It could be a little bit of the what we've talked about it before, kind of the George Lucas effect. You get so big that you surround yourself with yes men and nobody tells you when you're making a bad decision. Well, I mean, that's probably a point of it. But I have to think, too, it's just when you get so far into the the studio system that once you produce a movie that is like, we have a Godzilla and a King Ghidra uh, cameo here. But when you get so far into the movie system, like you you cease to be an artist and you become someone who delivers product. Yeah. And Tim Burton, bless his heart. I mean, like he, he has a d- distinct style in all those movies. He puts his stamp on all of them, but it becomes, it's just dressing over a turd. It's like yeah. it's shining a turd to its lustrous, most lustrous shade of brown. And I, I want Tim Burton to make a great movie. Like he's, he's got the tools. And I think if given the opportunity, he'd be absolutely capable of doing so. But he's made so many movies that I just vehemently hate that I don't know at this point that I would even give him a shot. It would be hard to convince me like, oh, he made a great movie again. So many directors do their best work early in their career because they're not so wrapped up in the studio system. You made a you made a perfect example right uh, or a point there, and I'll I'll use an example to expound upon it. Um, oh here here's their uh, here's our fucking twisted sister cameo with their with their hit song you're gonna burn in hell i think there really is no real video for this song if i'm correct i th- this is this is it 
I mean, <laughs> I know there's like a fan video where they splice together yeah. some scenes of Pee Wee Herman, but I don't think. Don't uh, you hear no evil? Don't you see no and evil? And actually, don't um, you you're gonna burn in hell. Oh my gosh, what were they? F- D. Snyder had met Paul Rubens, I believe, and he just happened to be in town when they were filming, or maybe it was, maybe it was uh, the director actually. Um, it's very, it's very possible. He, huh? he had met one of them, and he just happened to be in town. They were like, "Hey, do you want to stop in and be in the movie?" And do you know what else was filming uh, at the very same time? The yes. Goonies. Yes, the and, Goonies. And oddly enough, the Goonies affected the casting of this movie because do you know who the original choice for Francis was? It was going to be Corey Feldman. Corey Feldman. Yeah. Now that's a that's a talking point, right which there. is hilarious because does it work with a kid instead of? An, well, ad- an overgrown the, adult kit. See, I think the it's funny because Pee Wee is supposed to be, I guess, perpetually a kid. Yeah, uh, and what did I don't know? I don't. And Corey Feldman was a terrific child actor. He actually just liked one of our tweets on on uh, Twitter not long That's, ago. Uh, oddly enough, that was that was a shock. <laughs> but he didn't I, listen to the podcast. Well, I mean, I, we were mostly positive about him because his his work as a child actor. I mean, he he absolutely was a was a great child actor. Now, growing growing up and becoming uh, a <laughs> and, and an adult actor is, dance man. is is somewhat of a different uh, different story. That's a horse of a different color, but. I just I don't know that like you could have you could have done better than what you had. I think they they got lucky because Corey Feldman wasn't available. But you have to think though, if if he had been in in this, I mean, if they could have worked it out where he could have been in Goonies, man, just his that couple of years, it would have been Gremlins, Friday Thirteenth Part Four, uh, this and and man, I mean, fuck, he he already was Fox like and the Hound. It's basically like the stretch of like. A legendary career within the span of a year, um, and and you know throwing this in there, I think that would have probably he'd probably be dead by now because you know the, of the amount of fame. The crazy thing about Corey Feldman, I've always thought he seemed like such a mature and worldly child, and then seems like such a childish adult. Yeah, it's really strange. And I'm sure, I mean, if if his accusations of sexual abuse are true, that makes total sense. I mean, he was a worldly child, unfortunately, and then it's it's kind of maybe created a, a perpetual childlike state. I, I mean, if that's know. if that's something you would like to to hear us discuss uh, a little more in in depth, please uh, check out our Friday Thirteenth Final Chapter episode. Uh, we talk. Uh, I want to say we, me, and Fat Tony talk uh, a little more at length about Corey Feldman, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Let's talk about Paul Rubens. Um, a impressive career beyond the Pee Wee character. Um, he was in, he plays a small role in the Blues Brothers with Dan Aykroyd, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted. Uh, he was in Cheech and Chong's next movie, which would be the film debut of the Pee Wee Herman character. He retained with Cheech and Chong for Nice Dreams. He was in Meatballs 2. The best Meatballs movie. I think that's the one that has an alien in it. I, that may not be true. I think that may be Meatballs 4. I don't know. But one of them has an alien in it. Um, and speaking of aliens, he was the voice of Max in Flight of the Navigator. Huh? Everybody 
loves Flight of the Navigator. Uh, except Brandon. Except for Brandon. And of you know course. why? You know why I hate Flight of the Navigator? I actually probably don't hate it's it now. It's probably like the most obscure reason <laughs> you would hate that The movie. reason that I hate Flight of the Navigator is... there a talking it, animal? There is... <laughs> <laughs> That's a deep cut. I hate talking animals in movies. And you know what I hate more than talking animals in movies? Movies that have animals that don't talk. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but legitimately, um, I had chicken pox when I was a kid. And I, I begged my mom, go rent me some movies because I was going stir crazy. And I wanted her to rent me, <laughs> and I'm not making this up. The the fucking movie where the kid is in the wheelchair and he he flies off the ledge, Mac and me. I <laughs> loved Mac and me. Now my mom got that confused with Flight of the Navigator for some reason, and you know I'm a little kid and I'm thinking like, well maybe I've got the name wrong and this is the movie, and and so much of that movie is like, hey. Let's let's go here and look at some stuff. Now let's go here and look at some stuff. And I'm like, this is fucking boring. This kid doesn't even get shot by cops on accident in the <laughs> in the Japanese cut of the film. Dude, Flight of the Navigator again. It was one of those VHS tapes that I I didn't have the commercial store bought version. I had the taped off the satellite version, and it's in my top ten watched movies of all time. I've watched it so many times. Joey Kramer, if if you're uh, remotely clean and listening to this, contact us. Brandon will have you on in, in some way. Uh, coolest Canadian child actor turned uh, Fuck adult, the navigator. adult criminal. <laughs> um, anyway. Um, I love this, by the way. Uh, we, we have uh, the, the film adaptation of the film we just watched. James Brolin. And um, while his son was over filming Goonies, that's oh man, that's true. They're filming on the same lot at the yeah. exact same time. That's yeah. wow, how crazy! Um, the whole thing about this, and a lot of people don't realize mm. this: James Brolin, who's playing Pee Wee Herman, basically as James Bond. James Brolin was almost James Bond. He when it looked like that. God, when it looked like that. Uh, they were going to not be able to get Roger Moore back. They did a screen test with James Brolin and it, it's available uh, online. Find it on YouTube and he's not bad. And Morgan um, Fairchild's not bad oh, at that time. Morgan, Morgan Fairchild is what they say is all the way live. Yeah. Um, she looks good in her, uh, her, her blue one, uh, one piece leotard onesie thing. Um, that being said, I think I'd still rather have Dottie. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with that. Dottie, uh, Dottie in the uh, Kill, Fuck, Mary triumvirate, she would be the Mary one of the, the three. <laughs> she she was she was the cool chick. I, I love that Pee Wee uh, gets a cameo in his film, but they dub his voice. Mr. Herman paging Mr. Herman. Uh, Paul Rubens had... He was working the hotel desk in another film earlier in his career. Uh, that's um, that's one of the Cheech and Chong movies. It's either yeah, yeah, Nice Dreams. It might be Nice. It's Nice Dreams or or Next Movie. Uh, I think it's it's Next Movie because I think he in that movie he plays the the desk clerk and he uh, is Pee Wee. And then in Nice Dreams is the one where he's like hamburgers. Mm-hmm. 
By the way, do you do a Pee Wee Herman impression? Um, no. <laughs> Brandon, those of, those of you who don't know, Brandon is the what was what was the, our, the, the, the king of a thousand mediocre impressions? Yes, a thousand mediocre. Perf- it's it's uncanny. Yeah, he can do everybody almost. Almost. I, I can do them just enough to where you know who I'm doing See, and not good enough to be paid for uh-huh. it. At one point in my childhood, I could impersonate... Paging Mr. Harmon. Mr. Mr. Harmon, we have, have a telephone call at, at the, the front, front desk. desk. Yeah, I could do um, Pee Wee Herman doing Max, the voice on uh, Flight of the Navigator. When I was a kid, I could do that one. But, see you later, alligator. Oh, uh, no, that was my redneck voice coming out, but... <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, so, where do you think this movie ranks in terms of just, like, the <laughs> the the great 80s films of kind of, like, the, the comedy? It's right up there in the offbeat comedy. The 80s had some offbeat comedies, but the 80s were a pretty straight-laced time, honestly. And... Um, this well, is, Holly, this is Holly, in, in, in Hollywood films, you're you're correct. Yeah. No, there were a lot in the, terms of trauma. The, and, well, that was you know, later on, but but yeah, I mean, in terms of like a, a Warner Brothers film, this is pretty subversive mm-hmm. in, in a lot of in a lot of ways. Dotty, P W. She. I would. I don't know how I could get to the back seat of a bicycle, but I'd, I'd find a way to get her back there. There is something about her that, as a child, made me think a lot of Cindy Lauper, like that that voice, that like squeaky, like I don't know. Well, that's a Goonies uh, crossover oh my God, too. It yeah, is. Um, everything's cry. There's uh, Phil Hartman, his cameo. Yep, yep. Fuck you, Francis. You know the crazy thing about this is. I love Phil Hartman. Love Phil Hartman. But it wasn't until watching this as an adult that I realized that it was Phil Hartman. Well, Phil Hartman is very integral to the the HBO specials mm-hmm. and the and the the stage show that they did. Uh, he plays a, a sea captain character um, that, and you know, there's a lot of adult innuendo related. But Phil Hartman is probably top five. SNL performers and I'm not in terms of like popularity, but in like consistency and and talent, he could do so many things. He was so versatile and it's just such a shame in in the way that that he, his life was taken from him because he had a, a wandering eye and his, his wife was fucking nuts and you know, killed him needlessly just get a fucking divorce i i would love to know what phil hartman would be doing today it it would be it would be awesome whatever it whatever it would be i i mean it's innumerable the the possibilities i mean i know people shit on adam sandler movies me included but you know for a fact he would have he would have been the highlight of like every terrible adam sandler movie if nothing if nothing else, but I mean, we've we've brought this uh, hallowed story to an end. Uh, what we got to talk real quickly as the credits are rolling about the 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 sequels 
And that's plural, because yes. we just got a, a more recent one here recently. But uh, why did Big Top Pee Wee not, you know, follow suit in becoming a, a cult classic in the way that Pee Wee's Big Adventure did? I think a lot of the problems with uh, with that were directly related to the studios and the the, the licensing and the, who owns rights to what. Um, I think had it, it just didn't seem to have the heart of this movie. Um it, and it was just a little vague. I, I don't know. It, it just never connected with me. There are moments in Big Top Ewe where I think that the premise is it, it, it like is fully realized. You know, the circus and like there's a lot of fun to be had with that. But they kind of pay more attention to like the interpersonal relationships rather than like fun vignettes along the way. Yeah. And I mean, there's a talking pig in the movie. Um, <laughs> so that, uh, that's that a is, red flag. That, right that instantly makes me dislike it. Uh, but we got... Thank God Speck didn't talk. As, by the way, Speck um, uh, is a somewhat famous Hollywood dog. Mm-hmm. This was Speck's debut, but ended up... It's the dog in Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Um, that's crazy. I think... I think that was his last role, probably, because well, he was pretty. He was well. Buffalo Bill, you know, <laughs> <laughs> broke his neck. Um, but have you seen the newest Pee Wee film, the one that was released so, to Netflix? My kids have watched it, and I watched bits and pieces long enough to notice that maybe was in it from uh, Arrested Development. Yeah, but I, I've not watched, pro- given it a proper watch. It, it, it's probably a better sequel than. It, it's almost too similar in some places. Um, and it's the whole thing is like basically wrapped around that Pee Wee wants to have uh, dinner with Joe Manganiello. So there's a, <laughs> there's a weird parallel there. But otherwise, I think it's a perfectly fine movie. It, it It's a little less subversive than probably this one is. Is Pee Wee a big True Blood fan? Or? I have no idea. I, they, they, it may even explain in the, in the movie. I've only seen it once. I probably should watch it again. I enjoyed it. But it's definitely not. Did we talk about tequila? We well, we kind of did. We glossed over yeah. it. But I mean, that's you know, it's a seminal that, scene. In that's the movie. that's how that's how I know uh, tequila yeah. is is from this movie. And I, I can tell you how many times I have done that that peewee dance. Oh yeah, um, huh? much to the chagrin of people around me. <laughs> Anybody right. born after 1990 is like, what the hell? Yeah, is they, this they have they have absolutely no idea. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. We're going to wrap this one up. Uh, it was great to have you on board for this episode, and we'll definitely have you on some more down the line. Great to uh, be here. Aspen Film Society. It just showed. That was the production company. Well, there you go. But last minute information. Guys, find us on social media at Ransback Black Lodge. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on one of the many platforms we're available on, so please track us down on iTunes, you know, Stitcher, blah, blah, blah. And, um... Please stop by our homepage at JuicyKruger.com, buy a t-shirt, mug, or a sticker from RantArmy.com, and we'll see you next time, Rant Army. Till then, keep marching!